Hey everyone, welcome to the Planned, Prepped, and Productive Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Spackman, registered dietitian and mom of three, and believer in peaceful, easy, but also homemade family meals. On this podcast, I'm helping moms master mealtime and become the boss of their kitchen. As you do this, you'll find more peaceful meals through prep and planning. We will do this by focusing on four pillars for making mealtime manageable, doable, and if you give it a chance, maybe even fun. The four pillars are mindset and self-care, planning and organization, meal planning, and meal prep. This is episode number 96, Insider Secrets from a Chef's Kitchen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast today. I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest for the day. His name is Dennis Litley, or as his social media family knows him, Ask Chef Dennis. And let me tell you guys, this is one of the most fun interviews I've had in a while, and I think you're really going to enjoy our guest's fun and charming personality, as well as the wealth of knowledge that he has to share with us. Let me just tell you a little bit about Dennis. So Dennis was classically trained as a chef's apprentice. After completing his training, he went on to work at white tablecloth restaurants, and finally he ended up at an all-girls Catholic high school. After three years at the school, he created a culinary program that brought acclaim to the school and was used as a model for other schools around the country for teaching culinary arts. After retiring from professional cooking, Dennis became a food blogger where... As I said, he's become known as Chef Dennis by his fans and readers worldwide. Like I said, I had so much fun chatting with Dennis. I'm excited to jump into this episode where Dennis is going to talk about the program he created for this all-girls Catholic school and specifically how you can use the same techniques that he was teaching to improve your home-cooked meals, how you can stay calm in the kitchen, whether that be on a large scale or a small scale, and what to do when you feel stuck in a rut when you're cooking for your family and how you can get out of your comfort zone. So with that, let's jump into the interview. All right, everyone. Welcome today. I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest. I have Dennis Litley here, and he is a professional chef who shares restaurant quality recipes. And he's here to share some of his expertise with us to help us um, enjoy higher quality foods in our own kitchen. And I'm so excited to learn about his journey, his experience, and see what he has in store for us. So welcome, Dennis. Thank you, Amanda. I'm happy to be here today with you. Thanks. So to get started, I just want to t- I just want you to tell me a little bit about what motivated you to uh, start sharing your cooking experience with others as well as who you are. And sorry, actually. I'm going to take my own advice and start over because I skipped the first question. So, Mm -hmm. Um, all right. Welcome, Dennis. Uh, Can you go ahead and tell me a little bit about you are a little bit about who you are and what you do to get started? Absolutely. Yeah, I am a retired professional chef, although people always say you're you're never retired if you're a chef because you're always cooking, uh, which is pretty much true. But I became a food blogger. When I started a culinary program at a school, at the only school I ever worked at, I uh, kind of was tired and done with my career. And uh, a school opening came up. My wife is a teacher, so I figured, oh, let's match our schedules. I don't have to work so hard. And I got there, and the food was so bad that I ended up having to go back into the kitchen. I made an excuse about budgets and started cooking again. 
And uh, it was kind of at that point became like a made for TV movie. They were painting murals of me on the wall because the food was so good. The girls were it was a love hate relationship because they love the food, but they were gaining weight. You know, it was it was just a real fun experience and ended up revitalizing my love for food and my career. And part on in that, I decided I would start a culinary program so I would train my own staff. And that was the big part of it was I'd hire attempts for events and they were horrible. So just let me just train my own staff. And it turned out to be just incredible. And that's when I started blogging. I started a blog. So the girls had somewhere to go. And of course they never went, but other students at the school went and teachers went. And then one day I had a reader in uh, Singapore and a reader in New Zealand. And I was officially a blogger that day. That is awesome. I love that. I also have, I'm not a trained chef. I'm a dietitian, um, so, but I also have experience in school food. And um, it is fascinating to see how bad it can be and how yeah. um, I think that is a really fun place to use that culinary expertise because I think just because it's school lunch per se doesn't mean that it has to be no. traditionally that way. So I'm really excited to hear more about that experience. Um, and what is it? You kind of shared a little bit about this already, but um, so that's kind of what motivated you to start your yeah. sharing your cooking experience or expertise with others. Um, as we kind of dive in cooking, particularly like professional cooking, fancy cooking is really intimidating for a lot of people. So what would your advice be for someone that's just looking to get started in the kitchen? Well, you know, I think that's the problem as they see it as intimidating and as over their heads in terms of skill level. And that's really not the case because restaurant cooking is pretty much as basic as you can get. It's learning how to work smarter, not harder. Which, you know, as a home cook, you, know, you really need to do that, too, because you don't have the time. Uh, but I started sharing my recipes because I, I realized that a lot of people just don't know how easy it is. Or, you know, not that it's easy, easy, but how much simpler their life could be with a few tips and tricks. And a lot of it comes down to sourcing ingredients. And as a dietitian, you know, it's, it's really important to find quality ingredients or the right ingredients uh, to make what you're going to make. So my, my first advice to someone who's starting out cooking and feels intimidated would be start with foods you like to eat, because a lot of the problem with losing joy in the kitchen is you find a recipe that you feel you have to make verbatim, and it's got ingredients in it that you don't like or your family doesn't like. So right away, you're making something that you don't think people are really going to like, but you feel you have to because I'm trying to bring something new into the into my home and a new experience. But, you know, it's got something that's just not going to be the success you wanted. So that's where a lot of people go wrong. I tell people if I share a recipe like chicken and broccoli, but you don't like broccoli, use something else. Use spinach. Use asparagus, use your favorite vegetable. You know, if you don't like rice that I'm using, use your grain or use something else or, you know, change it and adapt it to your family's likes and, and what they enjoy eating. And once you start doing that, you'll start to find that you get satisfaction from cooking because you're getting positive reinforcement and you're enjoying the meal. So that's, that's my first biggest tip whenever I tell people starting out to cook what they like to eat. 
I love that. And I actually, I share something similar, just even from the perspective of um, trying to create a new habit. It's so much easier if you're not familiar with cooking to start with what you know. Um, I also, before we move on, just want to touch on something that you said earlier in that conversation, just that um, you think people assume it's intimidating, but it's actually quite simple. And I think that's fascinating. That was my experience. Uh, We had to spend time in professional kitchens to in order to get a degree and my eyes were opened i was like wait a second you've got all of those vegetables chopped already and you've got and you you see how and as a restaurant that's how it has to happen right they're putting these meals out to people in 20 minutes or less and for how however many people and i thought that was just a really big eye-opener to me to be like, oh my gosh, they're cheating. Not that you're cheating, but that's almost what it feels like when you are when you see it behind the scenes. So I think that's awesome. And I do think that we need to do more of that at home. And it's not cheating. It's it's just cooking smarter. Yeah, that's the whole thing. You know, in, in, in terms of restaurant tours, it's called a mise en place, which translates yes. to everything in its place. And it's a good idea, you know, to start that way at home, at least until you get more comfortable with it, for a couple of reasons, because it makes the cooking process really easy. And if you plan it right with your family, your significant other, you can make the prep work part of an enjoyable event rather than drudgery. So, I mean, if you're talking and having fun, you're teaching the kids how to do something, or you're sharing a glass of wine with your significant other, you know, it's more of an adventure at that point. But setting up your ingredients helps you move faster and also ensures that you have everything you need to make it. Cause I have done, I'm just as guilty when I don't set it up and I'm in a hurry and I go to grab something, I go, Oh my God, I don't have that. Now what am I going to do? And that's another situation you start to learn to adapt to when you get a little more comfortable. It's like, Oh my God, I don't have this. What am I going to add to it? And now you'll start to have a little more intuition in what you're doing and now you can fix it and put something else in it. It's not the end of the world. You know, I, I used to make things. What's, I'll tell you a little secret. Every now and then I'd make something and it didn't come out the way I thought, but it would still be delicious. So I just give it a new name. <laughs> yeah. That, that. that would be it. Like I, one time I cooked with mushrooms that were just so dark. The creamy mushroom soup turned out black. So I called it black Russian mushroom soup. And everybody went, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I, I think that. Uh, I think that's almost like the difference between like a chef and a cook, right? Is like you, you almost, it becomes this art, this like, oh, I can adapt. I don't have to be so rigid. And I, I do think a lot of us as home cooks feel very attached to those recipes yeah. and like, oh, that's not in the pantry. It's not going to happen. I love the idea too, of making the prep work fun, enjoyable. And, and I completely agree that that helps, you know, what you have and what you don't have, because that's like usually the step where I'm like, oh, yep. And how much less stressful is that when you're doing it as part of prep rather than like, oh, the ovens, the stove's already on, onions are already cooked and I don't have this. So you're like frantically texting the neighbor, you know, (laughs) but you can, you can really uh, figure that out beforehand, even if it's just 20 minutes beforehand and be able to figure something out. So yes, to all of that wonderful um, insights. So I want to dig a little bit more into what you started out with in your introduction about your experience working for this all girls school. 
Um, tell me about the program you created for them and how that was able to change the school food experience. Well, I already pretty much changed the, the school food experience at that point because I had never cooked for kids before, you know, not, not in that quantity or even a high school age, you know. Uh, so when I started cooking, I went like, what am I going to feed them? I'll, I'll make them what I usually make for executives or, or in the restaurant. I made chicken marsala. We had sushi. We had, uh, you know, fish, regular, you know, stuff that kids weren't used to seeing. And it, some of it was a big hit right away and others, I had to teach them how to eat. And we went from making, you know, a massive amount of, and it was a Catholic school, so we could feed them anything we wanted. We didn't have any restrictions. So massive amounts of fried chicken tenders and French fries to more vegetables on a salad bar, quinoa, bulgur wheat, you know, different things, roasted vegetables, and teach them how to eat a little bit better at the same time. So it was a learning experience for both of us at that point. But as things progressed in the school and I started to do this, functions got more involved. I got more functions because Chef Dennis was popular, you know, and he, they used to raffle me off once a year to do a dinner in people's <laughs> homes for the school. One year they got $15,000 for me. I was like, oh wow. my God. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> so uh, I needed help. And I had always tried to teach some kind of a class, no matter where I was. It was just part of one company that I started. The first company I started working for, a food service company, was called Wood Dining Services. And they always said, you have to give back. You always have to give back as part of what you do when you work at a place. So we'd have... Um, cooking classes like maybe every other week and people would come in and we would make something and show them how to do it. So I, I just kind of had started that a little bit and I had people that were coming and they were happy. And then I said, you know, I, I need to make this a little more structured, open it up and start teaching it as, as more of a course. You know, it wasn't super involved, but, you know, it was teaching them basic knife skills. And then we went through uh, different aspects of cooking and the first year I started, I had 60 girls sign up. I was the only instructor. And they started dropping off because the older girls wanted to be there, but they already had so much in their schedule, they couldn't fit it in. So I ended up that year with 10 freshmen and one sophomore at the end of the year. But they were like sponges. They were they were loving every bit of it. And plus, they got to eat at the end of it, too. And, and, and girls, <laughs> That's the best part. Oh, yeah. Girls love to eat. <laughs> Especially if there's no boys around, they don't have to worry. <laughs> so um, we had a really fun time. And at the end of the year at our biggest event, I told them, I says, all right, we're going to do this event, uh, wear a t-shirt, black pants, black shoes, and I'll give you a jacket and show you how to wear an apron so you look cool. You know, not a working class apron, but so you, you present. And uh, we walked out there and this whole room of about 500 people just went dead quiet. When we walked out, it was like, oh, my God, because they like, oh, he's a good guy. We know he's doing some fun stuff down there. The girls are happy. You know, everything's good. But they had no idea what I was really doing and how I had trained them and everything. So that that was the beginning of the course there. And then the company I worked for at that point, like, oh, they were like in heaven because I was getting them so much positive PR, uh, having social media. And, and so they modeled what I was doing across the companies uh, countrywide and started involving more uh, of teaching culinary classes in the different schools that we worked at. So it worked out to be pretty good at that point. 
I love that. Um, would you mind sharing what this is just something that I'm curious about? What do you feel like of from that program that you created was the most influential for those girls, or maybe that would be the most influential for any home cooks um, to implement into their own life? Some quick tidbit you could share. Obviously, it was a longer program, more time you had, but. Well, you know, it was, you know, once or twice a week, it wasn't a real in-depth one, but I think what I shared with them was showing them, well, first, the, the first basic thing that a lot of people lack is confidence in the kitchen, starting with cutting products, you know, not just knife skills. And just, it's not like you have to be super fast, but just knowing how to hold it, how to not cut yourself. You know, that's, that's the big thing. Cause if you cut yourself, then you're not going to, you're going to be a Afraid. So just knowing how to hold the knife, uh, how to use it. So that was the real first step in changing how they approached food. And then the second step was, like I, I said earlier, two part of it was knowing that you, know, you can mess something up and it's still salvageable. I, I had one instructor early on in my career and we were, it was the beginning and we were screwing things up left and right, but he knew how to fix everything. You know, it was like, oh, the sauce breaks, it's too hot, put a piece of ice in it. You know, the, the sauce isn't coming together, you put something hot in it, you know, just like things you wouldn't think of and, and different aspects. So everything was always salvageable pretty much, or you could still do something with it. So once you got over that fear of screwing things up, you didn't screw things up as much, but you know, if you did, eh, it's okay, we'll fix it. We'll fix it. So that was part of the initial thing. I, I had a something that I said all the time was, you know, it's not rocket science. We're talking about food here. So, you know, it's not really that difficult. Get, get over that aspect of it. And, you know, once you calm down, you know, things start to happen. Right. Isn't that funny too, that just that allowing that idea that if I mess up, it's okay, is suddenly the mess ups are going to diminish like by a ton because you're not doing everything from that place of such high anxiety. Yeah, you take so the stress take the stress out of the equation. Yep, absolutely. And I have to give a second plug for those knife skills. Hundred percent. Like if you're gonna do anything, I think it's boring to people. I don't think they would think like, oh, I want to be a better cook. I'm gonna practice cutting a potato into juliennes or you know, all of those things. But it is transformative to the cooking process and oh, yeah. to how to how fast, like you said, you don't have to be fast, but with practice, you will become faster and faster. And that's what will make your dishes come together so much faster if you can really master those knife skills. So I love that you uh, tackled that with them. You know, you know, and then the working smarter part too is a lot of times, all right, say, you know, you're going to make something tomorrow and I'm cutting up celery, carrots, and onions, which, you know, go in so many different things. Well, maybe I'll cut up twice as much, store them in a little water and put them in the fridge. So tomorrow night, I don't have to cut this stuff. Because once you get a little more proficient with a knife and you move faster, you could cut, you know, twice as many vegetables in the time it used to take you to cut half of that amount. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's another good area to think about. Yep. And if you've, already got the knife out, got the cutting board out. Sometimes that's half the battle. So awesome. All right. Well, I imagine, and you said at this point, you're retired. You're not retired, but retired from um, being a professional chef. I imagine that 
being a chef can be very stressful and chaotic at times. Uh, on a smaller scale, many parents feel that their own kitchen is very stressful and chaotic at times. So in addition to maybe feeling the stress of just not feeling confident, they might have like their three-year-old, their five-year-old at their feet, and they're trying not to burn dinner while they're also dealing with the meltdowns. And uh, how can you use your experience uh, in a restaurant environment uh, to share some tips and tricks for staying calm in the kitchen? Well, the thing that kept me sane a lot of times in a kitchen when things were crazy was music. I always had music playing in the background. You know, it might not have been that loud, but it was loud enough that I could hear it. And that gave me a place to kind of let my mind relax at during the hectic part of it. Uh, so finding something that you connect with like that, you know, I wouldn't put anything visual on because you don't want to, you know, if you have a TV on, it's going to draw your attention. But music, no matter what you like to hear or listen to. And, and then with your kids, it's a good opportunity to, to let them listen to different kinds of music, too. In the background, it's it's you're not sitting them down, forcing them to listen to it, but maybe you've got some classical music on, or you know something that you normally don't listen to, or they won't, and, and cause an appreciation. Where I had a great appreciation for um, big band music because my father always had it on, and I still love it to this day. Uh, but it was always just playing in the background. He didn't force it on me, but you know if I wanted to talk to dad, you know he had it playing in the background. So uh, music tends to soothe the savage beast or breast however they say i don't know what it is actually <laughs> but you know it, it's it's got a calming effect you know unless you're playing something really hard and ragged so play something soft and soothing in the background and uh it'll help you i think calm down enough to deal with the kids at the same time and watch what's dinner's cooking um and again if you can find something to give them to do you know even if if it's something they're not going to cut their fingers off with or maybe give them a bunch of basil and let them pick all the leaves off of it or pick all the leaves off the parsley, you know, give them a task to become helpful. You know, that'll give yeah. you time to prepare a little bit of what you're doing, too. But, and, that, and that's what I would do in the kitchen. You know, I would give all the other prep people, you know, work to do just so they weren't around yeah. just <laughs> getting in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And yeah, my that makes a lot of sense because you've got, in addition, I mean, in a way it's similar because you've got to manage these menus, but you've also got to manage the people. So um, there's a lot of parallels there. But yeah, some tasks that my kids love, um, husking corn is like one of their favorites and that is really time consuming. So that's oh, a yeah. good one <laughs> to use. Uh, they also, I love to, this is like a lazy mom thing that I love is to just call off the ingredients and they go gather them all up for me. So, and that's, again, I love that they're learning. They're learning what the difference between a parsnip and a turnip is, which, you know, I'm still one of those humans <laughs> that struggles with that one. <laughs> but, <I know. laughs> uh, anyway, so I love that. Also love the idea of music. think that is a great way of just toning down the situation. I like the idea too, of using uh, calmer music. Cause I don't necessarily always think that, that, um, the tone of the music can affect the tone of the room. So um, something new, something calmer can be really good to just give you, yeah, like a focus point, which I think is wonderful. So uh, moving on. So many parents feel stuck in a rut when it comes to cooking for their family. Um, 
so they just are making the same things all the time and they'd like to branch out. But we talked about this already that uh, sometimes branching out is difficult because you try the new recipe and you're like, well, I don't like half these ingredients. And then you're surprised when you don't like how the dish turns out because <laughs> you didn't like half of the ingredients. So, so what's your advice for maybe starting to branch out a little bit, um, getting out of that comfort zone, but still creating food that the whole family will enjoy? Well, you know, a lot of restaurant cooking is working around the same basic ingredients, which is adding them in in different bunches. So when you talked about, you know, us kind of cheating with everything prepped up, well, that was a big part of it. You know, you had people that would help you prep a lot of the stuff, but you had this huge array of ingredients ready. So you could change things up. And that's how I would kind of make specials. You know, I would see what I had too much of that I had to get rid of, or maybe something new came in the kitchen that I wanted to use. So it's not necessarily about creating something brand new and exciting. It's, it's, it's a matter of using different ingredients to make the same dish, but make the same dish appear different. So chicken is great to do with chicken. Just, you can do so many things with that. So, you know, maybe one day you're making a chicken dish with vegetables in it, but you're using chicken stock, a broth to make it. And Maybe the next day you're using the same kind of variation where a couple of days later with chicken in it, some different vegetables, but maybe this time I'm going to add a little cream to the stock to make, to change the texture or put some grated cheese in it to make it a little cheesier or shredded, you know, uh, cheddar cheese. It doesn't have to be, but something else different into it. So you take the same product. Now I can take that chicken and make chicken and broccoli and serve it over fettuccine. I can do it with uh, maybe peas, uh, carrots, and some other different green beans and some other vegetables and serve it in a broth uh, over rice, or I can take it and put the cream in it, or maybe I put a little red sauce in it too and make it like a rosa sauce. So it's, it's thinking about different additions and different subtractions with ingredients that you already have or want to add into your diet to make different dishes out of the same basic products. And, and that's that's how things start to happen. And then you start thinking, oh, that was great. Now let me throw some, you know, it's a treat. Let's throw some shrimp in there or let's do this with beef instead. Um, it's just a matter of getting your mindset to think about how you can just change things up. One of, one of the best dishes I make that, I, that my wife loves, so that's why I make it, is chicken marsala. So I had a guy come in. I was making chicken marsala, and people love it. And he says, we put some tomatoes and spinach in it. Well, sure. So I made it. Hey, this is pretty good. So that became chicken marsalina. And then one day at home, I was making chicken marsala, and I had pepperoni. And I says, ah, let's throw some of this in. Oh my God, it was incredible with pepperoni in it. Not something I would have ever thought to do, but I just tried it. So it, it's a matter of just taking that same dish and just adapting it. Yes, I love that. And, and that really actually helps illustrate something that I talk to my audience about a lot, which is this idea of learning to prep ahead without doing like traditional meal prep, you know, like what you see on Instagram where someone's like, here's my pre-made thing in uh, these containers. It's all the same. I'm eating it for four days, <laughs> you know? And I think that a lot of us, we see that and I 
for me, I was like, I'm not doing that. Like, (laughs) I'm going to make my meal from scratch every night, which is great. But then again, I also for a long, long time was like stressed out of my mind every night at dinner because I was recreating the wheel every single day. So I think the way that you explained it was spot on and perfect for showing, hey, you actually can do a lot of this legwork ahead and you still don't have to eat the exact same thing every single day. Yeah. One of the examples I use is like, I just from being in in a restaurant kitchen all the time and making mass quantities, I still make mass quantities at home. And, you know, that's for, for a home cook, that's the best thing too, because you can freeze stuff. Like I I saw you had a post about breading chicken on your website. And I said, that's great. You know, you, I, I'll, I hate breading. I hate doing it. So when I so when I do it, I do it. I do mass quantities because I don't want to have to do it again for a while. But I mean, if you pre-bread your chicken and then I will actually saute it and get it brown. So it's it's or, you know, air fried, however you want to cook it these days uh, and get it. So it's got a little doneness to it. And then I freeze them and I wrap them and freeze them. Well, you can make a multitude of things out of that chicken breast. That's sought, you know, you can serve it as is. You can make chicken parm or you can put bacon, tomatoes, and Swiss cheese on it. You can bake a cream sauce with mushrooms on it. You can, oh my God, it, things are limitless then with that one basic product, you know, and you do the same thing with eggplant. You do parm it up ahead of time. There's, and, and then you can combine them. You know, let's put some grilled chicken with my fried eggplant. And you know, then you start thinking out of the box. And that's when the creative juices really start flowing. Yeah. And I think it's really fascinating how you would think that that doing something like making a mass quantity of breaded chicken might limit you, right? You're like, oh, I only have breaded chicken. But instead, you illustrated right there how it actually opens the door to so many possibilities because you have this one limit that then allows you to start getting creative. You're like, okay, so it's breaded chicken. We know that. Yeah. We've got one thing <laughs> that we know. Yeah. And then you can pick the other things rather than opening your freezer and staring at raw chicken. And, you know, it just, it allows you to feel like you've, you've done a little bit of the work and that meal planning is no longer so stressful because you've actually set that limit. Oh yeah. It's, it really helps things. And the same thing with like, whenever I make marinara sauce, not marinara sauce, spaghetti sauce, marinara is quick. Um, but whenever you make spaghetti sauce, you know, I make that of it. And, and I, one of my other real big thing is I hate opening cans. So I buy number 10 cans. Those are those big cans. And you'll find a lot of grocery stores sell tomatoes mm-hmm. that way these days. And uh, my wife hates chunky tomatoes, which I love. So I have an immersion blender that I use to blend up the tomatoes in a can before I use them. But again, I freeze that sauce. And now you've got sauces like, all right, I can only serve spaghetti. No, you can't. You can use it. You can make a rosa sauce. We can do some vegetables, add them to the sauce. We can use that. So we can throw some meat, maybe make some meatballs or have something else with it. Or you can use it with ravioli. You can use it with... uh, all different kinds of things. If you just adapt it and change it up, if you like um, zoodles, you know, we have them with zoodles every now and then, which is a great way, or we'll mix zoodles with pasta, you know, to break up the monotony. So making something in quantity doesn't mean that you have to limit it just to that one thing it, it was initially made for. Absolutely. And also great tip about buying number 10 cans, because I, abused that, but I've never purchased them to use at home. And that is actually a wonderful idea to save yourself time uh, 
opening cans if you do want to make uh, mass quantities. I actually have a question, and I'm putting you on the spot a little bit Mm -hmm. here, but um, I have struggled to find like a great like stock pot for my house. I found good ones when I worked in food service, but I haven't fed. Do you have any tips of what to look for in like something to make these mass quantities of things? It's got to be a heavy pot, you know, and that's where a lot of the problems come in from. And I actually did. I, I had bought Belgique from Macy's uh, when I first started started at home because I, I didn't have a lot of money and it was that was still a lot of money, but it was a good pot. And those pots held up for years. And finally, after I think about 15 years, one of the handles broke off on it. So I, it's time for a new pot. And at this point, I could splurge and I went to all clad. Now, yeah. I, I have a 12-quart uh, rondo, it's called, which is a flatter. It, it's It's a stock pot, but it's not as high. So if you can get something a little bigger, Height is not always the beneficial thing to have because if you can spread it out a little more along, it it heat it heats more evenly, it heats better. The heat doesn't have to travel all the way up through this distance. So a, a larger pot, but in a wider pot instead of a narrower pot, is sometimes helpful. And those were called rondos. I think they call them braziers too. Um, but 12 quart for me is is the perfect size because I can use two number 10 cans. Uh, I generally put sausage in mine when I make it because my wife loves sausage. And then if I make meatballs, they'll go in later. Um, but that holds that plus a little bit more. So you can make a nice serving of sauce that way. Or if you're doing soups ahead of time. And one big thing about doing soups, I'm sure you know, is like you'll make a chicken soup and then add the noodles in when you cook it or add tortellini in when you cook it or add something yep. rice in when you cook it so it doesn't blow up and get funky on you. Um, but that's a really good size pot to work with. I also have... Uh, a six and an eight quart. So, uh, I, you know, just being because I can and I have the room, you know, uh, a boy with his toys, I always tell people, you know, a chef and his toys. So I have pots that you know, I rarely use, but when I do need them, they're there. But, you know, depending on what I'm making, when I'm making it, but for a large size, I like a good 12 quart. 16 starts to get too big and it, it spreads out too wide on a stove too. So you're not really getting enough heat under it. If you do have an inexpensive pan uh, that maybe doesn't have enough metal in it to really protect the bottom. You have to be careful. It doesn't burn. Things don't stick to it. A trick we used to use in the restaurant too, especially if we had gas was when we opened up those number 10 cans, we used to save the lids that we would cut out of them and we put them on the burners around it. So it would add another layer of protection between that and the pot. So, you know, that was an old, an old restaurant trick and they'll smell a little if you have a gas and they burn off as they burn off whatever residues on the, on the lid. But, you know, it's, you, we use those forever. That is what, so I asked this question out of personal experience because I had a bunch of neighbors with COVID and I was like, I'm going to be a nice saver. I was going to make a giant pot of soup that I was sharing with everyone in my cheap pot that. I definitely burned my quadruple batch of, and burning. I don't know if I don't know if there's coming back from that one. Maybe burning soup, especially. It, it's it's not a, it's not happy. It's not pretty yeah. when it happens, you know. And, and there's nothing worse. And, and I have had it happen, you know, because you get distracted, and 
the big thing with cooking something that is you want to get it up to that boil, stirring it as it's boiling so nothing sticks. And, you know, again, if you've got a little one running around that needs your attention or the mm-hmm. phone rings or someone comes to the door, and I, I remember being outside going, hey, that sounds like my fire alarm. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm talking to a neighbor, got distracted. Yep. And yeah, it was. So my, that pot was burned. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you, and just ruining that quantity of food, besides the expense, the time and the effort you put into it is just crazy. So, yeah, bring it up to a boil, drop it right down to simmer and just keep stirring. And then you know, once it's on simmer, you're you're good. Like I'll leave sauce on for five, six hours at that point because it just gets better the longer you leave it. Yeah. Definitely. Same with like chili. That's my favorite. Just start the chili, let it sit all day. That's awesome. Well, I think that was wonderful. So you've touched on this a little bit as we've kind of talked about some of these prep tips and techniques, but where do you look for inspiration for the kitchen? Is it is it kind of just a fun playground of experimentation or do you like to try restaurants and recreate those things or kind of where's your inspiration from? Absolutely. Uh, I, I We go out to eat and I'll pick things on a restaurant menu. I'll order it and it'll come and I'll go, oh, well, that isn't how I would make it. You know, and I'm disappointed. So then I'll go home and recreate or I have something really, really good. And then I'll try and recreate it. Uh, also magazines. I love food magazines. I used to go to, to uh, Barnes and Noble, get a cup of coffee and I would get every food magazine and I would go through it. And I would take pictures with my phone of the final dish. I didn't really want to know how they made it. I wanted to know what it was, what it was and what it was supposed to look like. Then I would go home and try and figure out what should go into it. Uh, So I got a lot of inspiration just from food magazines. I love uh, the BBC ones, uh, the British ones and the Australian magazines. They offer a little bit of different perspective on food, but you know, even watching the cooking channel or something, but, but don't get so, caught up and intense on how they made it. I mean, you, you want the technique, but you know, don't, don't think you have to, again, go verbatim, like with exactly what they, they do. Cause a lot of them, again, they have a lot of help there. And, and, you know, there's people underneath the counters and stuff, or, mm-hmm. you know, they, you know, I, I always had a, um, a philosophy when I made something new, if it didn't come out well, well, it never happened. And I'd start again, you know, <laughs> that went in the trash if I couldn't salvage it. But, you know, it was like, don't get hung up on how things are supposed to be according to someone else. You know, let's let's get it to how it's supposed to be according to you and, and adapt it to how you want. I love getting emails. Chef, I made your dish, but I use this, this and this instead. I'm like, wonderful. You made it your own. Uh-huh. Yes, I love that. I love this idea of just freedom and and having this be a place to express yourself a little bit instead of a place that you hate being, especially if you're going to be there anyway. Let's let's find yeah. some ways to make that joyful and um enjoyable. And I really like um I just I love that idea. So, um I think you've already given a plethora of advice that was helpful to you as a professional that can also translate to home cooks. But what is one thing, maybe the one thing we'll kind of wrap up with this that you feel like you learned as a professional chef that would be the most useful for parents uh, or individuals trying to provide for themselves or provide for their families when it comes to food? 
Well, one of, I don't know if this falls into that category, but one ingredient that I always tell people about are our soup bases. Because as a professional, you know, when I started working in a professional kitchen and I saw how they came packaged, I'm like, and then this one pound jar, eight ounce jar of soup base would make so much stock because a lot of what I would do in a kitchen comes down to stock. And it may not be, you know, making a soup batch full of stock, but a lot of times adding stock to a dish just perks up the flavor. Think of it as flavored salt, pretty much. You know, mm-hmm. we used to call North Swiss yellow salt because it, it was it was this bright yellow color. Uh, their soup base, their chicken base. But you can find these now in the grocery stores. Like, I mean, as a professional, I always use miners, you know, all through my career. That was the gold standard for soup bases. And you can find them on Amazon. I, I still get them on Amazon or at a restaurant store. But in the grocery stores, there's a product that I've used that comes pretty close called Better Than Bullion. And you can actually order it from their website too, and all different varieties of flavors. That you know, vegetable, uh, mushroom. Uh, they, I think, they have a seafood stock, uh, chicken, different things. So that's one thing that like home cooks don't always think about. They buy those boxes of uh, broth that get quite expensive because they're, they're a lot. And I've had some that are really, really bad too. Uh, the color's off, they're brown, they have some kind of a flavor. I don't know what it is, uh, but a soup base you can control a little more. You can put a teaspoon in, a half a teaspoon in to a dish and really perk it up. Uh, so so that's, that's like my one big tip for like a home cook to maybe expand the way they're thinking and their preparation. Um, for, for the type of dishes they can make at home. You know, for me, it was saute. It's easy. It's fast. It's done in 10 minutes. I can get it on the table. The time I'm cooking the pasta to serve it over, or maybe the rice to serve it over takes more time than me actually finishing the dish in mm-hmm. the pan. Uh, the other thing is sometimes that sauce is a little too liquidy for you. Take a knob of butter squeeze it into some flour, get it, get it really good and floured and put that into your hot sauce and stir it around. That's like a, a quick kind of a, we call it bermanier, you know, and that's like a roux, but a fast, real fast one. That, and, and you're adding butter to the sauce and butter is always wonderful at the end of a sauce. <laughs> butter, good. <laughs> so butter, you know, if you're going to add butter, you want to put it at the end um, and, and add the flavor to it, but that'll help thicken up your sauce too. I love that tip. That is what, cause I'm always the one that's like, even if I've made a roux, I'm like, oh no, it wasn't thick enough. And I make a quick like slurry, but how much better <laughs> would the butter so- yeah, than a quick slurry? Also a plug for, I am all about the better than bouillon. That's all I yeah. use at my house. And I love, you pointed this out. I think a lot of people think you have to reconstitute it into stock and you can, but I often am doing the same where I'm like, mm, this just could use a little like lift. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know what it needs, but we're just going to throw a teaspoon of whatever bouillon I, or not bouillon, whatever base I have on hand. Yeah. One, hopefully one that fits with what I'm cooking. But <laughs> so I think that's awesome. You know, I found too, speaking about what fits, like I, I love a good clam chowder or a good fish soup. And I found though, when I use a straight fish stock, or uh, clam stock, it gives it that, I don't know what that that back of the mouth flavor is, but chicken stock, you add a little chicken bouillon in it, you don't ever, it doesn't taste like chicken and it gives it right. that, that lift. Again, it's that, wow, this, it makes a big difference. You know, you got to try mm-hmm. to see, wow, that really is good now. 
Yeah. And like you said, it's not necessarily only in soups. Like you can even do it like in an Alfredo sauce or like, you know what I mean? Just add a little bit of extra something to it, which I think is so helpful. Yeah. Even the vegetable stocks, if you don't want to add another meat to it, maybe you're doing a meatless Monday and you want to keep it purely meatless. uh, You know, they make some nice vegetables, uh, bouillons Mm -hmm. too, some stocks. Yep. Yep. I like that one as well. All right, Dennis, that was such a a fun conversation for me. And I think that my audience is really going to enjoy listening, enjoy your insights and experiences. And to me, the biggest thing that I learned from this episode is to let go a little bit, to have fun. And it doesn't have to be perfect. You can usually fix it. And when you can't, you just move on and try again. This is an experience. It's just food. Um, And... I thought that was so enlightening and helped me feel better about what I'm doing in the kitchen. So thank you so much for being here with me, for sharing your time. Uh, I would love to share more about you with my audience and where they can go if they want to hear more from you. So can you just share what uh, products or services you have available? I know you have your blog um, and let me know how the audience can get them. And I will drop any links he talks about in the show notes. Great. Yeah, my blog is askchefdennis.com. Uh, and on social media, you can find me as Ask Chef Dennis just about everywhere. It was, I, I branded myself early on as myself, and it has been working out really, really well. It makes it easy. So, you know, I'm www.askchefdennis.com, and I even have the .net, the .org, and uh, a whole bunch of other ones. So just Google Ask Chef Dennis and let me help you bring some joy into your kitchen. That's, that's my philosophy is I want to help bring joy into your kitchen. Yes, thank you. I actually have one of your recipes on my to make list. The I think it's a, is it a shrimp etouffee? Maybe do you have that yeah. one? Yeah, that's so, a popular one. Yeah, I've never made it, so but I'm I'm gonna be relaxed about it. So absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I'll send you an email with how it goes. But yeah, go browse his website. It's got lots of delicious looking recipes. And once again, thank you so much for being here. All right, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dennis as much as I did. And I hope that you took something away that you want to try. For me, it was that tip about the pot. And I literally bought one a few weeks later and I've been loving it. So that was a great tip from Dennis. I hope you have a little something that you're going to try in your life. I would love to know what you took from this episode. So go ahead and comment on Instagram under the episode post or send me an email of what you are going to apply from the episode. Next time on the podcast, we're going to be continuing our conversation about minimalism and decluttering in the kitchen and about how that can really create the headspace that you need to be able to make homemade meals for your family regularly. And to do that, we're going to talk about what items a kitchen actually needs. So what is kind of the bare minimum requirement for items you should have in your kitchen? And what sort of items should you be looking for quality versions of those items because you're going to want them year after year after year? This is a continuation from the last episode of the podcast. So we're kind of staying in this minimalism decluttering vein, which is something that I'm really enjoying right now. So I'm super excited to chat with you guys about it. That episode will drop in two weeks. Again, thanks so much for showing up. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. You guys are why I do what I do. And I am so grateful to you. Until next time, happy planning.